Okay, so we are dedicating this class for Rafur Shalema of Menachem Mendel Ben Sarabasha, Yevodel Chaim Tev Maruchim, and the Le'elu Nishmat of Dora Fega Bas Shmuel, and Yevodel Chaim Tev Maruchim for Rafur Shalema for Miriam for Rezel Bas Miriam, and for Simcha Mezani Shterne Mezani Simcha Bas Tivia. Okay, so um, uh, as always, we start uh, we start the class with a a modern-day issue, a practical modern-day issue. And uh, what is the practical modern-day issue today? And then we're going to get into the uh, Kabbalah and the Hasidis, and then we're going to bring it back to make it all make sense and make it clear. So today's modern-day issue is called Dealing with Light. What is this all about? So both in the Jewish world and in the secular world, we hear a lot about tikkun olam, humanitarian causes, which both focus on the existence of pain, darkness, and suffering that needs to be fought. That's what tikkun olam is. If everything was straight, we wouldn't need a tikkun. If everything was perfect, rosy-dozy, and everyone behaved in the divine image they were created, we wouldn't have to worry about humanitarian causes. So um, actually, as a matter of fact, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of Great Britain, he said it as such, the Jewish people had become excellent survivors from a place of persecution and evil. However, we are challenged in living with success. Now, the bloodline of some primary Jewish organizations depends upon evil and their very existence and source of income as emergency campaign after emergency campaign become their motto. The Rebbe bemoaned again and again as the heroes of the Jewish underground came to America, the land of the free, and succumbed here in America to the peaceful face of the very secularism that they fought on the persecution in Russia. So it seems to be that as long as there's an enemy, as long as there's something to overcome, there's a battle between evil and, 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 and light, uh, then we're, do, we're doing good. But the minute it's no more about the battle, then it's not, uh, it's not the same. A lot of us succumb. And the same exists in our individual life as we focus our energy to fighting our character defects and self-centered desires. The teachings of Musser focus on identifying our egocentric body and its drives as being dark and needing to be broken. Even in Hasidus, where we focus more on the light, we still speak much of eskafia, to break the ego of the animalistic soul. So however, here's the question. Is life just about battling evil? Is the existence of our godly soul just in order to overcome our animalistic soul? And then what? once we successfully do that, when evil is banished and darkness is dispelled. What happens then? So, whew, let's uh, look at it from another perspective. When life is battling evil, then we eventually succumb to a phenomenon called battle fatigue. And especially when it's a 5,779 year, year long battle starting with Adam and Eve and the serpent you're gonna end up with a lot of chaotic cases, a lot of overwhelming cases, and we end up with battle fatigue. Thus, the modern day issue of this lecture is to learn how to break from battling our darkness and instead live within nourishing our light. So, this lecture is based primarily on a mimer of the Rebbe delivered on this Shabbat in 1966, exploring the difference between Aaron's kindling the lamps of the menorah and the Mishkan, tabernacle, and the princes of the 12 tribes of Israel bringing sacrifices and offering for the inauguration of the Mishkan. Okay, so that was the modern day issue. How do we not spend our entire lives and everything is not just about battling evil? How does it become about nurturing light and goodness? 
Okay, some introductions in place. Number one, kindling the menorah. So in last week's Torah portion, we concluded with the details and the sum totals of the inauguration offerings that each of the 12 tribes of Israel brought. Now, that was the end of last week. Directly following this, as we begin this week's Torah portion, we seem to go off topic. We talk about Aaron kindling the menorah. The command God gives that Aaron should kindle the menorah. Right after that, we go back again to the inauguration process, this time talking about the inauguration installation of the tribe of Levi. So it's very clear that this just couple of verses that suddenly talks about Aaron kindling the menorah is kind of out of place here. We were smack in the middle of the inauguration, we go back to the inauguration, and in the middle we just have this here. Our sages want to know what is going on. So our sages, and I quote to you Rashi, excuse me, he, I'm going to quote you the whole Rashi. He actually asked a question. Why is the portion dealing with the menorah juxtaposed to the portion dealing with the chieftains? For when Aaron saw the dedication offerings of the chieftains, he felt distressed over not joining them in this dedication, neither he nor his tribe. So he was he was crestfallen. So what happens then? God sees that. And God says to him, by your life, by the way, by your life is a terminology used when you're taking an oath. It says, by your life, yours is greater than theirs, for you will light and prepare the laps. So now we understand why this Torah portion, these couple of verses, which really don't look like they belong here, are here. Because there was all the inauguration of the other tribes, the tribe of Levi and Aaron was not bringing any inauguration. He's wondering why not, and he's feeling down about it. And Hashem says, worry not, because yours is greater than theirs. And what is yours? The lighting the menorah. So we see from here two things. Number one, this kindling of the lamps here is presented as an inauguration on the part of Aaron Cohen for the tribe of Levi. And the second thing we see is that this is even bigger than all the sacrifices and all the offerings and all the gifts that we learned about last week with such an abundance of all the princes, the 12 princes of the 12 tribes. And all of a sudden we're saying this is bigger than theirs. Okay? Okay. One, uh, yeah, now we'll talk about another issue. Doing as he was told. So the verse makes note after we talk about the menorah, it says, the Yas Aaron came and Aaron did so, did so. Hashem said to do it, he did what Hashem said. Now the sages want to know what exactly is going on here. So it says this shows Aaron's virtue that he did not deviate from God's command. Now I ask of you, what is over here the big Chiddush? It's not the first time that Aaron got a command. Aaron always listens to what Hashem says, never deviates. So why all of a sudden over here do we make a big thing out of it? But yes, Aaron came, Aaron did so, he did what he was supposed to do. And then besides that, you should know that this is very special that Aaron is doing and not deviating from what Hashem said. What's the deeper meaning here? There's gotta be a deeper meaning to this. Okay, one last introduction, which seemingly doesn't belong as an introduction, but you'll soon see how it works. In the book of Kings, there is something called Yam Shel Shlomo. In the book of Kings, there is suddenly verses over there which gives an exact description of how King Solomon's bath looked. It wasn't no regular bath. So I'm going to read to you the verses. It's three quick verses, and then we're going to see why we're talking about it here. 
and he made the molten sea 10 cubits from brim to brim. It was round all about, and the height thereof was 5 cubits, and a line of 30 cubits did compass it around about. And under the brim there were knops compassing it around, round about for 10 cubits, compassing the sea round toward the north. Now, here's the part that I wanted to talk about. It stood on 12 oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east, and the sea was set upon them, and all their hinder parts were inwards. So we have the big tub, and the big tub is placed upon the statutes of 12 oxen, three in each direction. Okay? What we want to talk about is these three topics. The topic of number one, there was the water in the tub, there was the tub, and there was the 12 oxen. Now, what exactly is this all about? Why specifically 12 cast oxen? What is the mystical meaning behind this whole Sea of Solomon? That's just introduction, and now we'll explain all of this. So let the lecture begin. Okay, as always, I'm going to give a list of uh, some Kabbalistic concepts that we're going to talk about. And then we'll go, into, we'll go through each one separately. And then we'll wrap it up with being practical. So number one, we want to talk about the 12 oxen. Number two, we want to talk about the seven candles. Number three, we want to talk about what God said. Yours, Aaron, is greater than theirs, the 12 princes. Number four, we want to talk about the difference of the split sea of reeds of Egypt versus the split river of Mashiach. We'll talk about a verse in Isaiah that talks about that. And then lastly, what exactly does it mean? And Aaron did so. Okay, let's begin. So the inauguration of the princes of the 12 tribes defines itself by being specifically 12. What does it mean that there was 12? Obviously because it's 12 tribes. But everything in Kabbalah is explained that everything is precise, a reflection of what's going on up there. So let's see what's going on. So to understand this, we're going to talk about the power of 12. That's why we brought the Sea of Solomon, which talks about the 12 oxen, okay? <coughs> what is the power of 12? So I drew a little picture. I'm going to show it into the uh, Facebook camera here. You see the three-dimensional box. Do you know how many lines it take, takes to make a three-dimensional box? 12. 12. Now, when we talk about the three-dimensional box, which is 12, it's not actually 12 lines. Rather, what's really taking place is it's 12 corner lines of where the six directions meet. So you have front, back, right, left, top, bottom. Where they touch is where you have that line. So the six, when they form a box, you have now 12 lines, right? Mm -hmm. Just look at the room. You have the four around the top, the four around the bottom, and the four vertical ones that connect them. That's 12. So you have 12 lines, which really is about the six sides touching each other. Now what that means in Kabbalah is that there are the six male emotions, and when the six male emotions unite, they create unities, from there comes a sustenance to the lower level, which is the three-dimensional world. So what do we mean when we say three-dimensional? Let's explain this for a moment. When we say three-dimensional, what we're talking about here is that we have now a coarse identity and form. What that means in the world of Kabbalah is there is what we call the three worlds of separation. Alma de Pruda is the way the Kabbalah refers to it. Worlds of separation. What does that mean? That means there are the three lowest worlds, which is Bria, Yetzirah, Asiya. Creation, formation, and action. 
Now, what makes that separation? Because the minute something has itself, its own identity, its own form, it's seeing itself as a separated from the oneness of everything. So even though we say God is everything and everything is God, God is the creator of all creations, but on the lowest level where there begins this coarseness and this arrogance and the ego and self-identity, what it's saying is, yes, God is creator, but I am creation. And thus, I do not see myself as just an extension of creator. Rather, I see myself as my own little macher. I'm a creation. Yeah, without God, it wouldn't be nothing. But with God, God created me. I am. Now, in the world of holiness, that is already considered separation. That's already the beginning of the existence of the other side. Unlike the tub, the one tub, what does that represent? That represents Malchut of Atzilut, the world of unity. What is the world of unity? The world of unity is where the vessels are absolutely transparent. That creation, the existence of everything that exists within the world of Atzilut, sees itself not at all as a something of its own. It sees itself as nothing more than the extension and expression of Hashem Achad. Thus, we now understand that you have the 12 oxen represents the world of separation, the world of ego, versus the world of Atzilut, the one tub, which represents the oneness of divinity. Now, with that being said, let's talk about it on the practical level. What does it mean on the practical level? On the practical level, what it means is that we are made up of two. We have the animalistic soul and we have the godly soul. What is the animalistic soul? The animalistic soul is all about the ego, self-centeredness. It's driven by the desires of me, 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 me. Thus, when we talk about the worlds of separation, when we talk about the 12 lines which create a three-dimensional box rather than the oneness of a dot, what we're talking about here is the animalistic side which is rebelling. It is wild. It's the stallion that doesn't want to be saddled. When we talk about the oneness of the tub, we're talking about the godly soul. When we talk about the world of unity, the world of transparency, the world of nothing more than a mere extension and expression of Hashem Achad, that's the godly soul. Now we can understand the difference between the two inaugurations. The inauguration of the 12 tribes was what? The inauguration of the 12 tribes was all about bringing animal sacrifices. What is the concept, the deeper concept of bringing an animal sacrifice? It's about taking our animal side, which is all about I, self-centeredness, that's what leads us to sin. And what happens? We draw that onto the altar of God, it should be completely taken in by the fiery love of Hashem. So the first step is to break and succumb, <coughs> subdue, the animalistic I, I, I. That thought of the three-dimensional I. Interesting. Off topic. I've said this once before. I heard it's from a great chassid. He's not alive no more. He's from Russia. He said when he came to America, he realized that America is the only language where I is capitalized and the Y from you is small. Because that's how we present ourselves. The I. What is that's the country? animalistic so You is capitalized? Yo. In Spanish, the Y is small, just like the T from two is small. 
In Spanish, for example. Yeah. In America, you don't use a small I, you use a capital I. Yes. And the Y for you is small. <laughs> but the point here is that the first step is to break the arrogance and the ego of the capital I. And that's what the inauguration of the 12 tribes was. They were doing the work, bringing to their tribes that power to subdue the animalistic arrogance, the self-centeredness, the rebellious side. That's what that part of the inauguration was. They were dealing with the animalistic soul. Now, what was Aaron dealing with? So we mentioned that according to Kabbalah, the top tub represents the world of Atzilut, which represents the world of unity, which represents the godly soul. We also have a different metaphor for the godly soul, which comes from a different verse in Proverbs. What does it say there? Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam. The candle of God, the lamp of God, is the soul of man. In this sense, how are we referring to the soul? As the candle. So when we talk about Aaron kindling the lamps, what are we talking about here? We're not talking about the work of the animalistic soul. We're talking about the world of the godly soul. Here we're not talking about breaking and subduing the I, self-centeredness of the animalistic soul. Rather, we're talking here about kindling, connecting us and revealing the light of the godly soul. Now, the question here is, why? Why is the, uh, why is the godly soul in the number seven? How many candles were there in the menorah? There were seven, right? Three, three, and the one in the center, right? We're not talking about the Hanukkah. The Hanukkah menorah is different. That has eight for the eight days of Hanukkah. We're talking about the menorah that stood in the Holy Temple, starting with the Mishkan and then making its way in Jerusalem. There's seven branches. There's three, three, and the center one. Why is the soul, the godly soul, represented with seven? We know now why the animalistic soul is represented with 12, because that's three-dimensional. That's already an eye. So we had to deal with that through sacrifices, animal sacrifices, which means in a deeper level, I sacrifice my animalistic soul. But when we talk about the godly soul, why seven? The simple reason is because the most primary part of the soul that we deal with today is the seven emotions. That's where the love for God comes, the awe for God, the compassion and all of that, okay? Now, so we're understanding very clearly now what's going on here. There's the seven emotion faculties, which is the inauguration of the godly soul, which is the inauguration of Aharon. Seven emotional faculties. The seven emotional faculties. So talk about it on the level, of, we're going to talk about it later. Um, I list them all. But if you want to know how it works on the human side, because later I'm going to list them on the Kabbalistic side. On the human side, you have love, awe slash fear, compassion, endurance, gratitude. And then we have um, commitment. And then we have kingship, which is expression. That's what they are in the human soul, okay? Now, let's go ahead and, and talk about, now that we understand the difference between the animalistic soul and the godly soul, the difference between the 12 tribes bringing animals as sacrifices, 12, the animalistic soul, and Aaron kindling the menorah, the godly soul, now we can begin to understand what Hashem said. Yours is greater than theirs. Now the question of yours is greater than theirs, there's a question here. So first of all, if you look in the Torah portion last week, the abundance, the sheer magnitude of quantity 
of what was going on with those sacrifices, what he all brought, the offerings and the gold, the, the, the everything that was going on. What did Aaron do with the menorah? He didn't do anything special. He did the same service he would do 405 years later in the Holy Temple. Not him, but the high priest. It was just a regular daily kindling. So it seems to be that the big uh, hoo-ha, the whole big hoo-ha was really with the 12 tribe, with the 12 princes bringing their inaugurations. This seems to be just a regular daily work, start today. So why? We kindle the menorah every day. So why is this greater than that? So to understand this, we want to go back for a moment. Okay? The 12 princes, their service was from below to above. Let's talk about this practical, and then let's talk about it spiritually. Practically speaking, who was the one who started the notion of bringing inaugurations? It says, and in the CA, the princes of the tribes came to Moses with an idea. We want to have inauguration. Moses won't do anything without God's okay. So he waits to hear what God says. And God says, yes, one per day. So where did the notion come from? From below to above. Where did, the, where did Aaron's kindling the menorah come from? From above to below. Now let's talk about this on a deeper level. What is the concept of, we said, the 12 tribes bringing animal sacrifices? It's about elevating the animalistic soul. It's about breaking the arrogance so that we can elevate it onto the altar of God so that it can be consumed by the fiery passion of the godly soul. So it's all about elevating from below to above. What is the kindling of the menorah all about? We said the kindling of the menorah is about connecting us to the revelation of the godly soul. Revelation is from above to below. Thus we understand that what humans do is far inferior to what comes from above. The elevating of an animalistic soul is far lower than the shine of the godly soul. So on a simple level we understand that when God tells Aaron, yours is greater than theirs, it's because they're only elevating the animal side. What you're going to do is reveal and shine the godly side. That's a simple definition of the difference. Now, there's another point I want to make here. But to understand the next point, we have to talk about a question. The verse says like this, when you light the lamps, the seven lamps shall cast their light toward the face of the menorah. That is mathematically wrong. Why? Look at the next page, and I drew you a little picture of the menorah. What does it mean, the Pasuk, that the seven candles should be kindled towards the face of the menorah? What is the face of the menorah? The, the middle. Rashi tells us, correct, in the name of the sages, that the middle branch is the face. Now you'll notice that there's three to the right, three to the left, and you'll notice on top how I lined up the flames. What is the flames? What happened was that the cups had a little thing where you put the wick. So you set them up that the ones on the right were facing left, so they were facing the middle one. The ones on the left were facing right, so they were facing the middle ones. So now let's see that again. The verse says 
that he lit seven facing the middle. No, he didn't. He lit six facing the middle. The seventh one is the middle. So what is really going on here? And the point over here is, according to Kabbalah, what does it mean you have to face the middle? What it means is that Aaron's job was to take the seven emotions of the soul and to elevate them where according to Kabbalah they enter into the center. What does the center represent? The center takes them up to the source of the menorah, which is what? The menorah has to be kindled with pure olive oil. What does pure olive oil represent? Kingship. Pure olive oil? Olive oil represents the supernal wisdom. Thus what's happening here is, Aaron's job is to elevate the godly soul, the seven emotions of the godly soul, because even in the godly soul there's different levels. His job is to elevate the seven emotions of the godly soul to their source, which is the wisdom. That is the source from where the soul of the Jew comes, right? It comes from the wisdom of God, for he and his wisdom is one. And then that goes even higher. It goes from the wisdom, which is the source. But what is the source of the source? What is the real primary source? is even above and beyond the world of Atsilas into the essence of the infinite light until we say truly a piece of God above. So now what we're seeing is that Aaron's job is so much greater than the rest. The other 12 tribes, what did they do? They had to elevate the animalistic soul to become transparent and can do it for the godly soul. What does that mean in Kabbalah? Let's talk about not the individual person. In Kabbalah that means that the three lower worlds of separation have to be elevated to align itself with the world of unity. Okay. But then we're talking about a whole different level where the world of Atsilut itself is elevated into its core source and into the source of its source. It all goes into the wisdom, the highest of the ten emanations, and from there it even goes above and beyond the world of Atsilus. What that means for us is, practically speaking, we have the Pintaliyid. Yeah, we have our Pintaliyid. The Pintaliyid is through fire and water. But then when we live our daily life of loving God, having awe and fear of God, and all that stuff, that's already a step down. Aaron's job is to kindle the menorah <coughs> that the seven emotions, the lower expressions of the soul, is open to the flow of the inner essence of the soul, the Pintaliyid, which goes into the supernal wisdom of God, which goes up above into the essence of the infinite light, which is, we're talking about here, the internal dimension of the supernal crown. Thus, we now understand the depths of what it means that Aaron, yours is greater than theirs. They're from below to above, and they're gonna reach where they're gonna reach. You're from above to below. Your job is to take the above and get it to the highest source and that should be shining into our day-to-day -day feelings for God. Thus yours is greater than theirs. This is all still Kabbalistic. We're going to get two more levels of Kabbalah here and then we're going to make it practical. We're now going to understand the difference between what happened when the Jews left Egypt and they were preparing to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai versus when Mashiach is going to come 
and he's going to bring us to the era of Vikulam Yodim Oisi. All will know me. When we left Egypt, what happened? There was a splitting of the Sea of, sea, of the sea of Reeds. How many breaks was there in the Sea of Reeds? We're taught 12. Each tribe walked through their own break in the Sea of Reeds. And that was how they got to the Torah. What does that mean to us? What it means is that number one, the 12, the world of separation, had to align itself to the world of unity in order to receive the Torah. On an individual level, what does that mean? The arrogance of the animalistic soul had to go through the 49 days of refinement. The animalistic soul had to be brought as a sacrifice. It had to be brought up where we can now become, we can do it to our godly soul in order to receive the Torah. What happens when Mashiach comes? So let me read to you a verse from Isaiah. He shall lift his hand over the river with the strength of his wind and he shall beat it into seven streams. So when we left Mitzrayim and we were going to eat to the Mount Sinai, receiving the Torah on the level where it's all about refining the animalistic soul, making out of the world a, a godly place. What are we talking about there? Twelve. Right? Because we have to elevate the three-dimensional arrogance and form. But when we're talking about going with Mashiach, what are we talking about then? Entering a whole different dimension of Kulam Yodim Oti. What are we talking about there? There we're talking about breaking the river into seven streams. Because now we're talking about the elevation of the soul into its source, into its essence source. Thus, once again, we see the seven is greater than the twelve. The kindling the menorah, the revelation of the godly soul to its highest level is greater than the refinement and the subduing and the elevation of the animalistic soul. And that's why Moshiach Hashem tells Aaron, don't worry, yours is greater than theirs. Okay? We still have to make this all practical, but I want to just share one more concept of Kabbalah before we, we, we have to wrap up one last detail. What was the last detail we had to wrap up? That's so. And he did so. <coughs> What's over here? The big Chiddush. Rashi tells us, we're telling you the 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 shvach, the the, shvach, uh, the, uh, the praise of a virtue of Aaron. What's the virtue of Aaron? He didn't deviate from what Hashem told him to do. What is that supposed to mean? So let's see what it means. Before I share with you this, I want to introduce to you rule number two of the 12 rules of how we extrapolate from the Torah. The second rule is called Gzereshava. What is a Gzereshava? It means an extrapolation made on the basis of identical expressions in the biblical text. So you have here a word, here it uses the same root word. So we extrapolate, the most famous one that you can understand from this is, how do we know what's called work on Shabbat? Because over here it says the word Malacha. By the Mishkan it says the word Malacha, <coughs> Machshevet, craftsmanship work. So we now know that if you comb through the Mishkan, you'll find out what craftsmanship work is there. From there, you'll find out what is the craftsmanship work that you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. So it isn't about whether you're sweating or not. It's whether it's constructive and all the other stuff that it mentions. That all comes out of a Gzereshava, the word Malacha. Don't do any Malacha on Shabbos. And to build a Mishkan, you had the Malachat Machshevet. That's what a Gzereshava is. So I want to introduce you to an interesting Gzereshava. Over here, what is the terminology used by Aaron, Vayas Aaron came. And Aaron did the word Vayas. <coughs> now, we're going to connect that to a different Gzereshava that the Medrash makes concerning Sarah. When Sarah gave 
her newborn son the name Isaac laughter what was the reason because it says Asali Tzchok God made Asa again lead Tzchok comes along the Medrash we're not even talking about Kabbalah yet comes along the Medrash and says one second this word of Asali Tzchok the word Asa made is connected to the verse in Genesis which says Yas Hashem and God made the two great the, the greater luminaries and from here the Medrash says that you should know that Sarah what she accomplished was that she brought greater light into the two luminaries now carry over that same Zereshava Vayas and God made two the, the great luminaries and what did he do Vayas Aaron Cain and Aaron did so we now make the Xereshava and we realize that on the mystical level, we're not talking about that he didn't deviate. On the mystical level, we're talking about that Aaron accomplished exactly what Sarah accomplished, which was what? They brought even greater light, greater illumination to the two luminaries which God created on the, in the six days of creation. What's going on here? How do you do that? The answer is like this. The verse has a contradiction. First it says that God made great luminaries. Then right after he says great luminaries, he makes a statement, the big one, i.e. the sun, and the small one, i.e. the moon. Thus all of a sudden you went from having two great luminaries to a big one and a small one. What does Kabbalah say that means? What it means is that the luminaries through which God shines his infinite light into the world is through his names. Each name represents something else. Thus what we're having over here now is two great luminaries means the two names of God. Which are the two greatest names of God that we know about? The one is the ineffable tetragrammaton and the other one is the Elohim. Right? When you make a bracha, what do you say? Baruch Hashem Elokeinu. Those are the two great luminaries. However, what did Hashem do immediately? He made one small. What does that represent? The word Elohim is numerical value of 86, which equals Hateva, nature. What that means is that God created that the name Elohim should be a shield upon the name of the ineffable Tetragrammaton Hashem. In order why? So that the great infinite light should not shine into the <coughs> finite world because we wouldn't be able to bear it. So thus we have the Moor Hakoton, the Elohim name, is covering so it can contract and conceal the infinite light of the Ma'or HaGadol. That's why there's the two differences. However, when you have the Vayas Aaron Cain, when Aaron Vayas, he did, what does it mean he did? In other words, he reached into the essence which is above the names and he brought in a whole new dimension of light which remedied the small luminary and brought even greater essence light into the universe. Now, if you look here, I didn't want to get into it because it's getting long as it is, but I put a little footnote here. The Rebbe talks about how Aaron also did an elevation from below to above. Because how do you reach the essence? The essence pleasure of Hashem is not when His divinity is shining, but when our coarseness is being refined to go up to Him. Thus the fact that Aaron had what we call Chol Shaddaitoy, he all of a sudden was like, oh my God, how come I'm not being part of this? What do you mean why you're not being part of this? He knew he was going to light the menorah. He's saying, yeah, I know that I'm going to have giving the divine light. 
but I also want to have the part of giving Hashem pleasure of from the below above, the refinement of the coarseness. There's something special to God about that, even though the infinite light of the soul is greater. And the answer is that by doing that, he also connected to a much higher level of refining and transforming the below to open up for the above. So thus you see that Aaron's was truly greater than theirs, not just because he dealt with the godly soul versus the animalistic soul, but he even dealt with the animalistic soul on a far more spiritual level by simply not having the arrogance of, oh my God, I'm dealing with the godly soul. No, but I know that as much as I enjoy dealing with the godly soul, God enjoys when we make a mensch out of the animalistic soul. His beer feeling that was already the below to above, and thus, once again, he accomplished what Sarah accomplished by bringing even greater light than the prescribed light that God gave us in creation. Okay? Kabbalah is over. Let's get practical and close it up. Ready? Yeah. Let's close it up. What does it mean? Let's read it inside. In closing, let us return to our opening modern day issue of overcoming battle fatigue by not making it all about the battle with darkness and to make it about nurturing light. Practically speaking, let's not get Kabbalistic, the light and the dark, let's get practical. Besides being rigorously honest with ourselves about our faults and the character defects that we have, we also need to be able to be rigorously honest with ourselves concerning our gifts and talents from God. We need to utilize these gifts and talents and share them with the world. This is why God gave them to us. Why do we think that Yom Kippur is only about the sins that we did? Yom Kippur is also about the mitzvahs we didn't do. Not just the mitzvahs we didn't do. What happened if we didn't use the great talents? I'm going to share this with you. I believe that after 120, when we face God, and God's going to ask us why we sinned, we'll have answers. But when God's going to ask us, what did you do with the gifts I gave you? What do you answer then? So thus we have to understand that it's not just about not sinning. It's not just about beating down our character defects and then straightening out our faults. Our gifts and our talents, each and every one of us is so rich with gifts and talents which God gave us to share with the world, to bring the world to Hashem Echad. We're going to get one more step practical. So too, life is not only about the self-discipline of observing the mitzvah, the commandments. Rather, there needs to be a safe haven from all the fighting with self. When we do a mitzvah, we're fighting with ourselves. When we do a mitzvah, what are we doing? No, I'm not going to do what I want. I want to keep all the money. I'm going to give tzedakah. No, I don't want to. I have to eat only this. I want to so it's always self-discipline. The mitzvahs are very great self-disciplinarians. But that's not what life is all about, fighting what I want for what God wants. Life is also about having a safe haven where we can enter into a higher dimension. This is the time we set aside for Torah study, total immersion into Torah study by closing our cell phones, letting go of our worries and, and plans, and to just fully belong to the delight of godly souls. What is the delight of godly souls? Studying Torah.